Welcome back to Shannon's Lumber Industry Update. I'm on to episode 115 today. Today, I'm going to do kind of an end of the year wrap up. I've done predictions in the past, but I want to do a little bit of trend forecasting and talk about some actual industry news. This is the lumber industry update after all. We're going to talk, I've uh, got some great feedback from listeners. We're going to talk about our featured species for the month of December, which is the dreaded splintery kind of sort of ebony, but not Wingate, African wingay. That's our featured species. I'm going to spend some time talking about that. It's a species that I love to hate, uh, but also hate to love. It is an interesting one. And often I cite it as one of those oddballs in the wood world. So uh, stay tuned if that's not enough of a cliffhanger for you. I want to talk a little bit about um, just touching on figured in wood. I'm going to do a whole episode on this soon enough, but I'm just going to touch on this and answer a question. I want to talk about... Uh, Jumping off of that figure question, how the working properties of wood will change due to how it grows. And then finally, what the heck is burnishing and what does it do to the wood? So that being said, that's 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 a lot. This might be a long episode, so we'll buckle up. As always, thank you to patrons of this show. For those of you who sponsor this show at uh, patreon.com slash lumber update, many of these questions are coming from you. Not all of them. I, I do answer questions from people who aren't patrons, but I certainly uh, drive them to the top of the list if you are. So if you are interested in sponsoring the show, if you have sponsored the show, thank you so much. It's been a great 2023. Thanks to the sponsors of the show. And I look forward to doing many more of these. But go to um, Patreon dot com slash lumber update and you can find out how to sponsor it in fact if you sponsor at the walnut tier and above you're gonna be getting this wingay species sticker i send them out every single month i've been trying to send them closer to the end of the month because anybody who becomes a sponsor while the calendar still says december is going to get one of these so if you're counting down waiting for the ball to drop on december 31st and you're thinking in my last 10 seconds i'm gonna sponsor the lumber update while I'm sorry it's not tax deductible, you will get a sticker. You probably won't get it till January, but you will get a sticker. Anyway, let's move on. Um, industry news. Let me actually start with, well, no, let me just go into the industry news. Um, both the UK and Canada are, are doing some things that kind of lend towards some of my trend forecasting here. Um, specifically in Canada, British Columbia has expanded the building codes for mass timber construction for for wooden stick frame construction they've expanded the code currently it's topped out at 12 stories which is still pretty dang tall they're upping it to 18 stories and they're changing some other things like flame spread um, several of the codes that currently making a wooden building has been difficult to do basically they're making it easier to make mass construction timber. So this is really leaning into that CLT, the cross-laminated timber construction. Several new plants have opened in the province as well as in um, the central provinces of Canada. Several new plants have opened in Northwest United States and Northeast United States. Cross-laminated timber is a thing. And this definitely plays into my trending for the next year. The fact that British Columbia is actually altering the building codes and making it easier to use CLT, but also can go bigger. 18-story buildings made out of wood. That's just cool. Over in the UK, they determined that 25% of their greenhouse emissions are coming from built structures. And if they were to use wood, they would store 400% more carbon in those structures. So in other words, let's build more wood buildings. Well, how do we do that? Well, we want to bulk up our domestic lumber supply, which is not only going to increase jobs, but it's going to just build up the industry as a whole. And there's all kinds of initiatives in the UK around how do we regain more supply? Something like 80 to 85% of the lumber used in Great Britain is imported from somewhere else, which makes sense. The British Empire cut down all their trees. Fortunately, the king, the fourth, 
said something about building greenways and allowed for the, the the maintenance of those green lands, but it really ended up becoming more pasture land more than anything else because having you know grazing stock in order to feed the country was more important necessarily than having lumber to maintain the buildings and, well, frankly, the Navy. Um, so is it any wonder the British Empire had to contract? They didn't have the wood to keep the ships up anymore. And the Navy kind of went downhill. Well, I shouldn't say that. Now the navies don't use wood anymore, which is actually foreshadowing of a, of a topic that I've got coming up later in the show. But there's all kinds of initiatives in the UK right now basically saying we want to build more wooden buildings. And certainly one of the biggest things holding it back right now is just the availability of lumber. So how do we get more lumber in country? How do we decrease our import levels and increase our domestically produced lumber. Well, we need more jobs. We need more infrastructure. We need more forests. We need more silvicultural management. And I think this is particularly exciting. The UK as a whole, as a way to, to combat global warming, to reduce uh, global emissions, is looking to build more with wood, which I think is fantastic. This is something I've been preaching basically ever since I you know, started working officially in the lumber industry was, hey, wood, it does grow on trees. You want to talk about sustainability and renewable resources that also sequester greenhouse gases? Wood is where it's at, folks. And more and more people are saying build more with wood. For the longest time, it was this vilified building material and everything went away into composite materials and engineered materials. And now industries... We're seeing it in Canada, we're seeing it in the US, and we're definitely seeing it in the UK. We're actually even seeing it in the UAE. Um, United Arab Emirates is doing something similar the UK is doing to say, let's build more with wood. So I love it. I love that it is now being viewed as a green product because it is the greenest of products. It's ultimately one of the most renewable resources we have. It's the turn rate that gets people and it takes so long to do this. But if you build the right silvicultural management, you've got constant turn rate. And if you're managing that appropriately, spikes in the demand hopefully won't get the better of it. And if we can use modern technology through genetic engineering and, and silvicultural engineering to produce faster growing, stronger trees, you might be surprised what we can do. And I think ultimately the research and the innovation, the R&D to building, building a better tree, if you will, will come from demand. If there's a commercial demand for it, we're gonna see a lot more. So this leads me to my trend forecasting for, oh, sorry, one more, um, one more industry trend, which kind of indirectly leads to it. So we saw the crazy spikes during COVID, right? Like if you look at graphs of 2020, 2021, and 2022, like the fourth quarter of the lumber futures market is just this giant roller coaster that is, you know, hundreds of a percent higher. You got this line like crawling along the bottom of the graph, and then it just goes nuts, 300, 3000% higher in some instances in that last quarter of the year. And it's been that way. Um, 2020, 21, 22, always kind of flat during the first three quarters of the year and absolute crazy nastiness in the fourth quarter. 2023, we're almost to the end of it, it now shows a flat line all 12 months of the year, which historically speaking is what the lumber futures market has been. If you're looking for like quick bang for your buck investment opportunity, lumber is not it. And I said this in a previous episode, the margins in lumber are very, very tight, but you can kind of take it to the bank. You can count on sustainable income, consistency in your income, because everybody always needs lumber. And while it's mostly a flat line, it's a pretty stable line and it's a safe bet. If you've got an existing book of business, you have a safe bet of being able to count on that month over month, year after year. And it was those couple of years since COVID that just went nuts. And, and frankly, it's been really good. It's been bad for you know the wallets of all of us buying lumber, and I count myself as one of those. Um, but it's been great for the lumber industry because we finally had the excess cash to reinvest in infrastructure, new equipment, new machinery, better automation, better mechanization, better software, frankly. Um, which should help us to continue to grow the industry, but we're going to continue to see it as a flat line. So 2023 might actually be a return to the status quo. And despite what I think a lot of people, you know, the general perception is of the lumber industry was taking the money and run and a bunch of war profiteers or COVID profiteers, that money was put to use in reinvestment. And now 
that it's stabilized again. I'm hoping that the entire market will stay stable, but it might lift up one or two points. I don't think the prices are ever going to quite go back to what they were pre-COVID, but if they settle like 50 cents above the norm and stay there, that will do such amazing things for the lumber industry over the next 10, 20, 30 years. So let's talk about the next 10 to 20 to 30 years. We are seeing this trend towards engineered lumber. I'm not talking about synthetics or composites. I'm talking about engineered materials. Plywood certainly is an engineered material, but when we're looking at laminated timbers, cross-laminated timbers, glue lamps, things like that, that have shown to be structurally, from an engineering perspective, superior to natural wood and superior in many ways to steel and certainly cheaper and more renewable and sustainable than steel. The engineered wood market and the stick frame construction industry, both commercial and private sector, is in some ways, it's, it's, it sounds funny to say revolutionized because we've been building out of wood, you know, since the Romans. Um, and we've been building out of stone that long too. But you get the point. It's not like it's a new thing, but we can do more with timber, with cross-laminated, with engineered timber that we can't really do with solid wood. And for that matter, where we are relying in certain aspects on solid wood, like when we need a really, really long um, beam for a timber frame structure, we've had to rely upon solid wood because the, the engineered thing hasn't been there. Where now the engineered material is starting to replace the solid woods. And engineered material allows for better use of our forests, better use of those solid woods through, it's in the name folks, cross laminated timber. You can deal with shorter pieces. Glue lambs deal with shorter pieces in order to make longer pieces. By gluing a bunch of stuff together, doing a series of scarf joints, doing cross laminated type stuff, you're getting these 29, 30, 40 foot beams made entirely out of solid wood, but engineered to make it a super strong piece. And I've talked to several people, fingers crossed, I'm hoping to get them on the show, about how do we how do we scale this down? Certainly we're talking 30 foot beams. We're talking about skyscrapers, 18 stories tall and things like that. Denver actually has a project right now that I think will be 16 stories tall. I don't know where it is in bidding. Um, and frankly, I can't talk about it because I have an inside track on it um, <laughs> called a sibling. But um, there, this is happening all across the country. But how does this like scale back? What about two by fours and two by sixes and traditional stick frame construction in the residential sector, which still comprises the majority of it? And a couple of these guys have been talking to, this is what like the CLTs and the glue lamb companies are starting to do is, yeah, our bread and butter, we got on the mat building these 30 foot beams, but one of our byproducts is, could be 10 foot, eight foot pieces. We could make studs better, stronger, faster, cheaper, better use of the natural resources than the current manufacturer of studs. Now, I don't know what that's going to take because you're taking on enormous companies like Weyerhaeuser um, that, that have been making studs and making two-by construction lumber for centuries at this point. But Weyerhaeuser has already shown its interest in investing in, in engineered products as well. So it's possible that they're going to you jump all over this. So I actually could see, like, imagine a world, I'm going to enter my best movie trailer voice, imagine a world where studs are actually two inches thick and four inches wide and not twisted and not bowed and can be had for a fraction of the cost of your current stud. Imagine that world. That world is engineered material. We've started to see this already happening, and the glue lamb companies that are making these giant beams could very easily then run that same beam through a machine that cuts it into 300 two by fours. Now you're producing 300 two by fours in a matter of seconds. And the material required to do that came from an early growth, probably clear cut managed, uh, silvicultural managed plot of land that is seeing a turnover of every couple of years. So being able to manage that silviculturally speaking and being able to keep up with demand, the ever growing demand for, for wood building products, if suddenly your turnaround was two years, maybe four years to the outside, that would flip the script entirely. And that's the direction this is heading. Now saying this, I recognize that hardwood dealers like who I work for, we're not going to be happy about that. But 
maybe we would. Maybe we will stop seeing our material being used for structural purposes and used for aesthetic purposes. Maybe we'll see box beam construction and glue lamb construction where we're, we're, um, we're putting like a pretty mahogany exterior on you know, a, a CLT beam, which we're already doing a fair bit of that anyway with some more exotic materials. Maybe that will become more mainstream and not more of a luxury type thing. And we'll have better usage of our hardwood forests at the same time. Now that's a big, big maybe because this is an industry that is extremely resistant to, cheer, to, to change. Uh, to quote Garth uh, from Wayne's World, we fear change. So yeah, but that's what I think is gonna happen. Now, what does this mean to my previous forecasts about the urban logging and the grassroots lumber industry, I honestly think that they stand to benefit even more from this. If there is less of a commercial demand on the hardwood markets, it allows people to be pickier. It allows people to focus on that local Sawyer, that grassroots effort. And I think that's going to even be even better management of our natural resources. So um, if you can't tell, I'm really excited about this. Um, engineered beams and CLT is so cool. I've had some conversations with civil engineers. I've had conversations with people in the industry who decidedly are biased because they're working for companies that do this, but all signs point to this is a brilliant idea. And some of the tech that's coming out of this, not only in, in production and creating a better beam, a more fire resistant beam, but the production, the technical execution through CNC, the ability to build an entire building that can be assembled like a jigsaw puzzle on site at a fraction of a cost in the time that it takes to build the skyscraper out of steel is truly amazing stuff. Truly amazing stuff. From a work and safety, health and safety perspective, from a timeline turnaround and deadline management perspective, to a waste management, in other words, elimination of almost all the waste, this is truly revolutionary. This could be the biggest thing since the two by four. That's my prediction. I'm not going to say for 2024 because I do think this is a longer term thing, but you're certainly going to see some things heading in that direction and, you know, government incentives and subsidies going towards these industries in order to build the production and to build the infrastructure for it. That's where we're heading, folks. All right, let's move on. Let's take a breath. <laughs> move on to some feedback here. I got a... Um, Great comment on the Lumber Update website, which by the way, there's a whole website, lumberupdate.com. You can leave comments like a normal, good old fashioned blog. Um, Michael left this comment. Michael, uh, good man. Michael's a hand tool school member. So he's an especially good human. Um, he said, uh, he was talking about the RIP Boardfoot episode. I think it was uh, 112, 111, somewhere in the hundreds. Uh, he said, I listened to this episode and I loved it, but one thought crossed my mind. Rockler, could start this process of going away from board feet. Um, possibly, and this is actually where I see it happening, Rockler, the other Rockler, the Canadian Rockler. If you're not a Wood Talk fan, you don't get that joke. If you're not a Wood Talk fan, what's wrong with you? Go listen to Wood Talk. I actually talk about woodworking over there sometimes. But um, these retailers that are also selling like tools and router bits and things like that, really it's it's much more of, of an impulse buy. There's not a lot of people I know who are necessarily buying their whole project worth of lumber at Rockler. Some of you are, because you may not have another alternative, but Rockler and, and Woodcraft and, and Lee Valley and places like that tend to be more of, let me buy that cool accent piece, or let me pick up that board because I'm there to buy a router bit and pick up this impulse buy, or great craft lumber, like half inch thick, three eighths inch thick, small pieces for making boxes. This is really in the niche that they're exceptionally good at. And it just is already priced per piece by the board. And I definitely see that is where those are the retailers are gonna to start to do that. Moreover, more and more retailers are starting to stock tools. Several of the lumber yards that I've bought from for decades now carry Festool. They now carry some router bits. They've recognized here is here's that impulse. You know, somebody who is going to buy router bits, maybe they'll buy a board as an impulse. Well, vice versa. Somebody going to buy quote unquote real rough sawn lumber will be there thinking, oh shoot, I do need a core box bit. I do need a round over bit. And I'm seeing more of these traditional lumber yards starting to carry a small assortment of tools or just things like glue and sandpaper, like the disposables. And they're finding that this is a great side income for us. So these are the companies that are going to start to move away from pricing by their board foot. 
But Michael then goes on to say, just a thought, what about those big old slabs? Don't they price those individually? Why bother with the board foot on them? Well, frankly, I don't know anybody who's pricing their slabs by the board foot. I shouldn't say I don't know anybody. There are a few people I know, but the slab is kind of the perfect like gateway drug into this buying by the by the board. Figured lumber at the same respect, very few lumber yards are selling figured maple by the board foot because frankly, it's a unique item. Slabs, figured material, it's one of a kind. You know, one piece of figured maple is not the same as the other piece of figured maple. For that matter, there's quilted maple and fiddleback maple and curly maple and tiger maple and all the different kinds of figure that like luthier supplies and veneer supplies may start to grade levels of figure, but the average lumberyard is just gonna call it figure or maybe they're gonna call it curly cherry or curly walnut or curly maple. Sometimes they'll get into quilted maple or something like that. Pomely, you know, for Bobinga or Sapili. But, you know, these are unique boards that tend to be priced by the board. The slab is the perfect illustration of a unique piece of lumber. Moreover, when you look at the price of the average slab, we'll just say $1,000, that's probably a bit cheap. If you were to break down the board footage in that, you would find that that per board foot price is ludicrously high. Like if it's a slab of cherry and you could buy cherry at $6 a board foot, you'll find that that slab might actually turn out to be something like $17 a board foot. And if they priced it that way, no one would ever buy it, but they'll buy it at $1,000. Because what they're doing is catering towards a very specific application. Those slab buyers are are wanting that, you know, full through sawn double live edged conference table or live edge coffee table or something like that. It's very few people who are seeing that and ripping it into strips and making a whole project out of it. Now, more and more is happening simply because the turn rate of slabs is so low that these sellers have had to kind of change the story, if you will, and say, hey, you can build your whole project out of this one board. You know, think about what it would cost to build, to buy enough lumber for that regular project. Well, you can buy it all here and you get to grain compose and all that and all the the marketing that says buy a slab when it's not just for a conference table. But ultimately, the cost per board foot is much higher than it would cost to go buy, you know, FAS lumber which is ironic because you're not going to get FAS out of every board that comes out of that slab. Well, it depends on the species, but for the most part, you're going to get a lot of less than grade stuff that comes out of that slab. But due to the unique nature of it, due to the specific application of it, they're going to price it by the piece. So that's the the, the thing that stands in the way of pricing regular lumber by the piece. But I also think the more and more people that get into woodworking, um, the, the more it's gonna make sense, which is my original point in that is why the board foot is dying. Um, Kevin had a great comment. He said, in one of the recent episodes, you talked about white oak being hard to get because how lumber yield by, because how lumber yield reduced the log value. Um, I thought you might be interested to have the log pricing report for Pennsylvania. Um, well, actually, it's the pricing report for the entire country, but it's broken into regions. In Pennsylvania or the east and the northeast, white oak logs are actually top of the market. Um, and actually, that's in just about all the regions. If they're not the number one uh, log price, they're the number two. So I think what he's saying is, you know, they're the there's not enough logs and it's hard to get because the the value has been reduced. That is still an absolutely true statement. And I wanted to bring this up, Kevin, because what you're talking about is a very different thing. You're talking about stumpage rates and stumpage rates is the cost of the log in general. Um, And absolutely white oak logs are at the top of the heap because everybody wants them. The demand for white oak logs is through the roof. So the cost of a white oak log has continued to climb significantly over the last year to the point where it is the most expensive log, if not in the top two most expensive logs in every region in North America, not just the U.S., in North America. The reason that it's difficult is because the demand is not for white oak logs. The demand is specifically for rift sawn white oak, not quartered, not flat sawn. Well, flat sawn to some extent, but definitely not quartered. It is for rift sawn, which is producing the highest amount of waste in that log. So you may get a bunch of other boards that aren't rift sawn, and there's really no market for that. So you get like eight pieces of rift sawn out of the log, You've and the cost of that log was more than it was before, and there's greater competition for those logs. So yeah, there is 
um, a real problem in this because people are not recouping that cost. The low value is based upon the low yield. And I paid, you know, $400 for that log. And I'm lucky to sell those eight pieces of wood that came out of it for, you know, $100. Well, that's do the math. That's a losing proposition. So be very cautious when you look at values. Make sure you're understanding the value of not just the board, but the cut and the grade of that board. Very, very different than the cost of the log itself. The stumpage rate is what it's known as. Finally, um, since I was talking about uh, the British and their lack of maintenance of their forest because they don't have to maintain a Navy anymore, this came to me for a while. This is actually from Vaughn. The U.S. Navy actually manages a forest of white oak logs actually out in uh, Indiana somewhere. One of the, it's like the largest Navy base uh, ever, <laughs> U.S. Navy base ever. And interestingly enough, it's in landlocked Indiana. And it's actually, um, it's a support command. And back in the 60s, they realized that we still have to maintain the USS Constitution, old Ironsides. And it's, oh, I think one of two uh, Navy ships still commissioned that are made out of wood. And when they did a restoration of the Constitution, they realized, woo, it's very difficult to find the white oak of the caliber we need. So back in the 60s or the 70s, they said, well, let's grow it ourselves. And in 2014, 2015, they started to do the first harvest of this very mature, specifically grown for, for ship building for the U.S. Navy. So interesting fact, the U.S. Navy has foresters. So these are active duty ranked I don't know if they're, they're officers or NCOs or, or what, probably a little bit of both, whose title is Forester, which I find hilarious. <laughs> you know, you think Navy, you think boats, you think on the ocean. And here's a guy who specializes in forestry management, who is an officer or whatever, a ranked, you know, non-civilian active duty member of the United States Navy. I think that's fascinating. I'll actually link to an article uh, on this, which is kind of cool because there's some cool imagery of the forest itself and some of the actual logging that's going on in the recent iteration of restoration efforts being done for the USS Constitution. So Vaughn, thank you for that article. Vaughn is also a hand tool school member. Good man. That's not why I answered his question or posted it because he was a hand tool school member, because it was cool. All right, let's talk Wingay, folks. Ah, this one's interesting. Um, I often use Wingay, uh, Melithia Laurentii. I probably pronounced that wrong. As an example of the example that Sometimes the technical specs don't tell you everything. It's the exception to the rule in many instances. So let's talk about it. If you're not familiar with Wingate, it's a very dark wood. It's black and kind of chocolatey brown. It's very stripy in color, very striated. The, um, the, you can't really say early and late growth because it's a tropical tree, but what there is of early growth is kind of that chocolate brown and the denser late growth is black black, black, black as can be. So in many ways, it's often viewed as an alternative to ebony and it's gained a lot of popularity lately because ebony is very hard to get, very expensive, it's endangered, it's CITES listed, it also is very difficult to find in anything other than turning blanks. So wingay can still be found in timber form in all kinds of different cuts and sizes. Mostly it's sold in quarter sawn because that is the figure that is most aesthetically pleasing. That's really what grabs the market share. As an African tree, it's a big tree. So you can get a pretty large yield out of your quarter sawn boards and still get a fair amount of flat sawn uh, as well. It's a central African tree, but it'll grow everywhere from like dry, somewhat deserty forests of Tanzania, um, uh, Gabon, uh, Cameroon, but it also grows deep in the tropical rainforests of the Congo, of the DRC, even swampland in the Congo as well. And I'll bring that up uh, at a little bit later point. In other words, it's got a very wide distribution, but it is an African tree. And like a lot of African trees, big wide trunk. I think it's like a four foot average diameter. And this is not a particularly tall tree. It's kind of short and squat uh, in comparison to things like Sapili and, and, and such. But um, what's interesting is um, 
It's a very strong tree, and that's a difficult thing to characterize. I will talk a little bit about that. In fact, there's a great article in the Wood Database about what makes wood strong. I actually think I'll link to that in the in the post on the website because it's kind of particularly um, important. A lot of people say, oh, that's a strong wood. Well, is that a, that, what does that mean? Does it mean it's hard? Does it mean it has good bending strength? You know, great stiffness, what? Uh, and the answer is yes. It's a combination of, of hardness, uh, MOR, MOE, and crushing strength, really. And that's what that article in the Wood Database is really good at spelling out. But it is a very strong wood, um, very impact resistant, um, high, high bending strength, high, high uh, stiffness as well. Um, but uh, it's got a really, really high silica content. In fact, it's kind of glittery in appearance if you hold it up to raking light. It is quite toxic too. Uh, we'll talk about the splinters in a little bit. That's what most people think of. But um, when you get a splinter, you gotta get it out because it will become inflamed within like hours, if not minutes, depending on how uh, sensitive you are to it. The wood dust is particularly bad. Um, it can cause all kinds of nausea. It can cause like like drowsiness, like all kinds of neurological type issues. But moreover, because it's so splintery, it actually can cause physical pain because you can actually breathe in splinters and get them in your in your um, esophagus. Heaven forbid, hopefully not all the way down in your lungs, but lots of issues with like respiratory, like getting in your eyes can be a real problem. It is a toxic wood. So if you're using it, take precautions. It's also a sensitizer from skin contact, cause rashes and all kinds of stuff there. So yeah, I'm not painting a really good picture of Wingay here, but you know, it's got that really cool chocolate brown thing. But the caveat there is when you put finish on it, it turns almost all black, which goes back to what I said earlier. It's a great alternative to ebony. And in many ways, it's taken over a lot of the ebony share of the luthier market. You're finding it in guitar backs due to its um, high, high hardness, uh, 1919 to 2000. Um, pounds per square inch. Well, what do we know about tone woods from the tone wood episode? Those really hard woods with slightly lower density become really good tone woods. Well, this is what's interesting about Winge. It is hard. So let's get into the numbers here. It is, um, first of all, it's a diffuse porous wood. Um, very solitary pores, not densely packed at all, but very large solitary pores. We'll get to that in a second. So as you would expect with a diffuse porous wood, it's going to be hard. It's generally going to be more than a thousand pounds per square inch Janka. This comes in 1930 up to about 2100. Similar hardness to most of your fruit woods, apple, uh, pistachio, dogwood, um, but also very similar to the hickories that we're familiar with and, and similar to a lot of of the exotics like Goncala alvis or tigerwood, if you've worked with that as a decking material. Um, similar to Bubinga, a little bit softer than Bubinga, but similar in that respect. From an MOR, MOE, um, 22,000 and 2.5 million. So again, those numbers don't really mean much, but very, very similar, almost identical to the ebonies. Gabon ebony, Macassar ebony, and several of the rosewoods. So it gives you kind of an idea of, of its impact resistance due to that high hardness to its incredible stiffness and incredibly high bending strength. So high hardness and, and bending strength, uh, crushing strength is off the charts too, but I don't really reference that much because it's a bit more obscure. But all four of those numbers are really, really high, which is why you can classify Winge as a very strong wood. But here's the thing. The density is about a tenth of a percent, or 0.1, excuse me, um, not percent, 0.1, um, lower than the same woods we were just talking about, lower than those ebonies, than those rosewoods. Density um, is similar to, well, back to the hickories a little bit, which is kind of makes sense because hickory is, while it's a ring porous wood, it's got big wide open pores and there are big pores in the wingate as well. Um, the weight is about 54 pounds per cubic foot. So similar to hickory, to mesquite, Osage Orange, um, exotic-wise, similar to Paduke, Purple Heart, and Bubinga. Um, but what's interesting, when you look at, like, look at those exotics, Paduke, Purple Heart, Bubinga, look at their MOR, MOE numbers, and they're, they're quite a bit lower than the Ebony's and the Rosewoods. So Winge, similar weight 
two Hickory, Mesquite, Osage, Paduk, Purple Heart, Babinga, but an MOR, MOE of a much, much heavier wood like ebony and rosewood. The ebonies and rosewoods tend to be 84 pounds, 96 pounds, even 100 pounds per cubic foot. Moreover, their density numbers generally tend to be one point something and above. So again, um, density of, of a winge is 0.72 or 0.86, depending on which number you look at, but less than one. The rosewoods are 1.1, 1.2. Ebony's the same thing, 1.0 something, 1.1, 1.2. So let's let's start looking at this comparison here. We have a wood that is air quotes as strong as ebony and rosewood, but significantly lighter, significantly half as light in some instances. So now we're talking strength to weight ratio. This is a professional cyclist, folks. This is a guy that has amazing watts, but can climb hills because he weighs practically nothing. Now, 54 pounds per cubic foot is not practically nothing. It's still pretty heavy. So for cycling fans, we'll say it's more of a, I don't know, more of a Matthew Vanderpool, incredible power, but can get up and go up shorter hills, shorter bursts of strength. Sorry for people who aren't cycling fans. Actually, no, I'm not. I need to, I need to mainstream cycling in the US because it's a great sport. Anyway, this is what makes Wingay the exception to the rule. And so many outward appearances, both from a just physical, it's dark, it's heavy. It should be very similar to the Ebony's and the Rosewoods. And it is on most of the technical properties. The strength technical properties make it a super strong wood. But the density and those huge, huge pores I was talking about earlier makes for that, that lower density and that lower weight. There's just more dead air in it, making it a lighter wood. So what does this mean? Uh, well, let me finish some numbers here. Movement-wise, it's relatively stable. Um, 1.7 TR ratio, 4.5% uh, tangential, 8% radial. It's kind of large numbers, but they're they're pretty even. It's twice, twice the tangential. Um, did I just say tangential versus radial? 4.4 radial, 8.4 tangential. So it's about twice. It's almost, it's almost 2.0. Um, but when it comes to a lot of those really, really dense, really, really, uh, hard exotics, it's actually pretty stable in that respect. Uh, gluing, you're not really going to have a problem. It's not a particularly resinous or oily wood. It's kind of a dry tropical wood. Um, the silica can sometimes be a problem when it comes to gluing, but for the most part, it's not really an issue when it comes to finishing, uh, or gluing it's the silica is more of an issue with finishing. Um, so what is it used for? Um, tone wood, as I said earlier, seeing as in a lot, not only just tone wood, but also aesthetically in the guitar building world, guitar backs. Um, I've seen this in some respect being used in fretboards, but it has to be heavily, 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 heavily pore filled. Actually for backs as well, it's gotta be heavily pore filled because of those big, um, and albeit not very many pores, but very, very large pores. I mean, compare this to an ebony. You can't even see the pores in ebony. This stuff looks like hickory or like red oak pores. They're that big. Um, but I'm, I'm told, and a lot of my research shows that it's used for like sporting goods. I don't see it being used for like, you know, hockey sticks in North America, but maybe more European sports. I don't know. Do they use it for highlight? <laughs> What's a European sport that uses sticks? Polo? I don't know. Lacrosse? I don't know. That's more Native American. I don't know. Honestly, Europeans, speak up, folks. Do you see a lot of wingate being used in sporting goods? Because there's several resources that say it's used in sporting goods. I don't see it in North America. That was a new one to me, but it's shown up on several different places saying that's the case. So maybe I'm being ethnocentric and being um, and only seeing what I see locally here. But um, certainly some cabinet making, a lot of hobbyist type woodworking is used a lot in flooring due to its high Janka hardness. Um, and the fact that flooring finishes can be quite viscous and can fill those pores just by playing six coats to it. Flooring is where I see it most used commercially with the exception of one thing. From a volume perspective, the largest portion of wingy I see used is actually in structural purposes for building bridges. What did I say earlier? Super, super strong highly resistant to impacts, great stiffness, great bending strength, but it's lightweight. So you can build a bridge and engineer the crap out of it with all kinds of buttresses and things like that to, to make sure that it, it's not weak because of its own weight, 
or you can build a bridge with similar strength properties and a much, much lighter material and make a more delicate structure, make a more really artistic structure with Winge. And I'm selling, just me personally, our company, selling a lot of Winge for building bridges. Also interesting, Green Heart and Purple Heart shows up in this uh, same little niche. But yeah, there's a large portion of Winge. As I said earlier, what makes Winge different from Ebony and a great alternative is you can buy it in eight quarter and 12 quarter and six inch wide boards and eight inch wide boards and big 10 foot, 12 foot long boards. It's very common to find this in Winge where nearly impossible to find in Ebony. So if I'm building a bridge, this is a great option. Um, I can get long pieces and that's where the majority of that stock is going. So if you're going, hey, you're full of it. I've never seen a, a Wingate board that long. I personally have bought an eight foot Wingate board. I don't recommend it. It's very expensive, but I have seen it. A lot of the wing I see in retailers tends to be six feet and shorter and not particularly wide, six inches and narrower, really. That's because the big stuff, it's already been bought in bulk by the bridge builders. And there are a lot of companies that do nothing but build bridges and that's what they're building it for. So there we go. Little unknown fact about Wingate. It's, it's big. It's big in the bridge building stuff. Um, but as I said earlier, it's a very splintery wood. If you ever work with it, it splinters if you look at it wrong. And this is due to the fact that those big wide open pores kind of interrupt the grain flow interrupts some of the, the, the bonding. Um, and you just get, when you cut across those pores, basically the edges of those pores, if you take a pore and you cut it down the middle, now you've got this crater. Well, that wood, because the bending strength and the stiffness is so high, because the hardness is so high, we end up with a kind of a brittle wood. And when you break up those fibers and you cut that pore in half, all the wood around that pore suddenly becomes very weak and it breaks and splinters away. Moreover, the high level of silica in the wood kind of interferes with that lignin and that hemocellulose bond that you get that splintery, splintery effect. I think the other important thing is it's probably not any splintery than any of the other tropical woods. It's just that because it's so strong, because it's so hard, the splinters stay together. So Sapili is often listed as a very dusty wood. Well, I think that's just because it doesn't have the strength to hold together. So as it's running through the blade, you know, it's almost atomizing the wood. It doesn't have the structure to stay together. Um, if you, uh, rip or crosscut winge, the wood is so strong at a cellular level that those splinters, instead of being turned into fine dust, they're holding their form. And I think that's really what's happening with winge and why it's so splintery is because of that inherent strength, but also because of those big pores. It just, like I said, it interrupts the flow and allows for splintering. Same reason that like if you build the tabletop, uh, you really don't want to leave a sharp edge on it. First of all, it can cut people, but second of all, it's a splinter point. The same reason we kind of chamfer off the bottom of the legs of a table, because when that table or that chair is slid across the floor, if you have a sharp edge, that's just going to splinter off. So you add that chamfer to kind of blunt the edge and make it more durable. Well, because Winge is so strong, when you cut it and you get those sharp edges, it will splinter. And I think that's really what's happening more than anything else. And that's why it gets a bad rap because it is very, very splintery. But the irony there is, is my understanding is it's splintery because of its biggest strength, its strength. Now, I said earlier, it's not a good idea to buy eight foot boards because this stuff is pricey. It's on the 15 to 20 board foot. Uh, $20 a board foot range. I've seen them go higher than that, but I haven't seen them much lower than $15 a board foot. And you tend to find them at the retail level in narrower and shorter lengths, mainly because the guys at the lumber yard realize they're never going to move these eight and nine foot boards. So they're cutting them down in many instances, marking them for sale by the piece. I have several local lumber yards that do that. I know because I've sold them larger quantities of Winge and I know what I've sent them and I go look at their showroom and it's all six foot pieces. They've cut it down, in other words, because it's easier to sell a piece of Winge, you know, at $80 than to sell a full board at $250. So there we go. Um, personally, I've worked with it a lot. I've turned it quite a bit, which is interesting because, because it is splintery and so open poured. Um, you do have to heavily pour fill it, but I find pour filling super easy on a lathe because you can use all kinds of pastes and things and really pack it in at high speed and get a high shine on it. Um, because everything you're doing is across the grain for the most part on a lathe, it kind of 
ameliorates some of the splintery nature of it and it makes it just a little bit easier to work with. But certainly all kinds of small items, boxes, little keepsake items, things like that. But that's mainly just due to the size of the Wingay boards that I've had at my disposal. In many instances, I've bought Wingay from places like Rockler and Woodcraft because I can buy it in a three inch thickness, you know, by three inch wide board and make a box out of it or something like that. So I have one board in my shed that is eight feet long, that is uh, eight inches wide and it's five quarter and I've had it for 10 years. And honestly, I need to find something to do with it. But here's the other thing. Wingay is dominant because it's so dark and because it turns almost black when you finish it. You can't really make a piece of furniture out of it because you'll lose the detail because it's so dark. It'll like suck in the light like a black hole. So more often than not, it ends up being used for accents, you know, drawer pulls or like a panel and a door at most. So it's one of the reasons that I haven't really used that Wingate board because A, it's so hard and cross-cutting and resawing it is a major ordeal, especially in my hand tool shop, that I just have kind of like skipped over it. Um, but you can't take it with you. I'm going to have to build something out of that before I die. There's a morbid thought to end on. Um, some alternate species, as I said, Ebony's an alternate, but I say meh to that because I think Wingay is the better option and the cheaper option than Ebony and a less, you know, more sustainable option than, than Wingay. Um, Penga Penga is essentially its cousin. Uh, it's in the same genus. Um, it's basically identical in every way. In fact, the only way to tell them apart is by holding it under a black light. Penga Penga fluoresces and Wingay doesn't. Um, Peruvian walnut is a good alternative, a heck of a lot cheaper, um, not nearly as open poured, but it definitely has that dark chocolatey color. And if you like Wingay because of the chocolate color and you were disappointed when you finished it, that it turned black, Nogal or Peruvian walnut, um, Euglans Neotropica is the botanical. That's a, a great alternative. And there are some rosewoods that are alternatives, but again, I kind of cry foul on that because the rosewoods are much more endangered, much less sustainable and come in smaller boards. So the best alternative to Wingay is Wingay. Just buy it in smaller quantities in order to afford it. So there you go, folks. This was an interesting one because it is a perfect example of you can't just look at one technical property and draw a conclusion. And sometimes you can't look at three or four technical properties and draw a conclusion. And I often talk about Janka hardness and I talk about density and I talk about porosity as key ways to identify it. And oftentimes I tend to kind of put density near the bottom of that list. This is a perfect example. Look at the porosity, look at the Janka hardness, and you can draw some conclusions and you would be wrong until you look at the density and you look at the weight and realize, whoa, something's going on here. This shouldn't be this light and this shouldn't be this, what's the opposite of dense? Less dense? <laughs> Scarce? I don't know. Um, <laughs> Scarce? Not dense. This shouldn't be this light and, and this not dense based upon the other numbers. You throw in MOR and MOE and you're like, what the hell is going on? It is truly, uh, well, every wood species is unique, right? But this is truly an anomaly. And often I love to cite Wingay as the perfect example to keep digging a little bit further. And if you don't understand what's going on, Wingay is a perfect illustration of why. So thank you for everybody who sponsored the show and is going to get a fancy Wingay sticker uh, in the mail. I'm going to start mailing those out in the next couple of days. So if you want your Wingay sticker, patreon.com slash lumber update. That's enough sales pitching for the day here. Um, let's move on to some questions here. Um, I have a question from Jake. He said, uh, I had a disappointing experience with my first curly maple. And he puts curly in quotes. I recently went to a local lumber yard um, and I uh, wanted to try some soft maple for a project. And the gentleman there sold me what he said was curly maple and not just milling marks. As you can see in the photos, he sent several photos to me. It has a very distinct kind of fiddleback pattern, noticeable wavy texture and you run, when you run your hand across it. Um, I, I understand that's caused by compression as the tree goes. You are right, Jake, and stay tuned for my figured lumber episode coming soon. Um, Jake goes on to say, however, when I ran it through my joiner, all that wavy goodness disappeared. This is my first time working with figured maple. So I wonder, uh, is the figure in the photo smooth wavy texture, just milling marks left over from the sawmill? And two, is it possible to plane out the figure in wood? So, um, I'm not going to go into detail on the photos, but the photos he sent me that are, those are milling marks. That is not curly maple. 
Now, I'm not going to point my finger at the guy at the lumberyard and say, you robbed him, you're a crook. He probably didn't know any better because this happens a lot. Um, there's a lot of people who like find that diamond in the rough and they claim, I just bought curly maple at Home Depot. And then they plane it and realize it was just mill marks that were left over. It was skip planed or it was the shadow of mill marks. Like it feels smooth on the surface, but like, you know, I'm sure you've done this. If you're planing a board and you're removing, you know, Mac Cremona sized, or excuse me, Mark Spagnolo sized bites at a 64th or 128th of an inch per pass. And like the board is now smooth, but there's like, shadow marks where like you still have a bit of leftover from the from the milling people who bought home depot lumber and found curly they discover they run it through the planer and the curl is all gone because they're actually mill marks it can be difficult to tell but oftentimes when you find that those those curly lines are perfectly parallel and really closely spaced they're probably mill marks and I say not always because fiddleback maple does present this way. They're very parallel lines, but you find that the bands of curl tend to be fatter. And if you find really narrow, really thin, perfectly parallel lines, those are probably mill marks. And that's what I was looking at in Jake's picture. But to answer his question, is it possible to plane out figure? Absolutely. Now you will probably have to plane out a fair bit of figure. But a good example, because figure is often caused by compression, what's the opposite side of that tree? If it's compressed on one side, it's stretched on the other side. So while you have a lot of figure on one side of the tree, as you move towards the other side of that branch or that log, you're going to have less and less figure. You're going to have less and less compression. So you're going to run into a point where maybe there's that you're straddling a line and you have kind of medium figure on one face. And if you plane enough away, that figure will disappear. Um, quilted maple is a good example of this where you can't really call it like tight figure, but you'll actually see the figure move. You'll see it kind of shift over the board, like shifting clouds to be poetic. That's as you're moving deeper into that board, you'll see that figure shifting, that, those lines of compression, the curl that's in the board is starting to shift as you go deeper into the log. So, you know, that may be an unusual circumstance where you're right on that transition line between figure and not figure. Um, and it also just be maybe an example of you're planing too much wood, stop it. <laughs> you're wasting good figured material. Great question. Um, Steven, <clears throat> said, uh, could you comment or perhaps do a whole episode um, on how a wood may deviate significantly from the technical properties we see on wood database? Specifically, I'm thinking like how plantation teak differs from true Myanmar teak or how a piece of old growth pine will have really dense growth rings versus a two by four that has really widely spaced rings. So um, I suppose I could do a whole episode on this, but honestly, Stephen, the two examples you gave pretty much hit it. Um, so let's let's go into that. Um, plantation teak versus genuine teak, Myanmar teak. Um, the difference is often plantation teak, and most plantation teak is coming from India, um, sometimes from Africa, and mostly from Indonesia, Java, Sumatra region, and region. And the difference there between Indian teak and Indonesian teak is it has much less silica in the wood than Burmese teak, excuse me, Myanmar teak, forgive my, my, uh, uh, ethnocentric, um, gauche statement there. Um, the silica is what makes teak such an outstanding, probably best of the best exterior wood. It's what boat builders love about it, that high concentration of silica, which basically makes it waterproof. But also that lack of silica changes the extractive level and changes the chemical composition of the oil and kind of the waxy feel that is genuine teak. So if you pick up a, a milled piece of Indian teak, and a milled piece of Myanmar teak. The Myanmar teak will have a definite waxy feel and luster to it, whereas the Indian teak will not. It won't be nearly as oily either. And that's that cocktail of extractives that is born off of that SiO2, silica, sand, essentially, due to the sandy nature of the Myanmar soil. So how that represents from an extractive level is the, the non-genuine teak has a very variegated appearance. It's very stripy. Um, and it never, well, granted, Myanmar teak is very stripy when it first comes out of the planer, but as it oxidizes, it turns to that uniform kind of honey brown. The plantation stuff never really does. And it maintains a lot of that crazy color and streaky nature due to just the different chemical composition. And it's not nearly 
as water and weather resistant, like significantly less so. I would rank many, 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 many species above plantation teak uh, for an exterior usage. It's crazy the difference in durability. So that's that's one of the big things. Um, so anytime you take a, a species and you transplant it for plantation purposes somewhere else in the world, this happens. Spanish cedar, fantastic. And as a South American and Central American wood, transplanted in Africa, totally different species, totally different function. And, you know, Spanish cedar is often referred to as cigar wood because it's the perfect wood for humidors. African Spanish cedar, hell no, totally does not do what the Spanish cedar does. And I don't want to get too heavily into that because it's a whole other geeky conversation, but the cocktail, the soil chemistry totally changes the makeup of African Spanish cedar to the point where it cannot be sold as a humidor would. Um, we've seen this with the mahoganies time and time again, and all the marketing put on the African mahoganies, both the Kaya actual African mahogany to the Sapiles uh, and Utiles, the Interfragma genus, you know, people will call it Sapili mahogany or Utili mahogany, totally different species. Um, but people have said, okay, well, let's transplant Sweetina macrophylla, genuine mahogany into Africa, and it does not do well. The only instance I've seen that it does well is in Fiji, and you get a very similar wood. In fact, many people say it's surprising that Sweetina macrophylla did not naturally occur in Fiji because it actually grows better in Fiji than it does in Central and South America now. But changing the soil chemistry totally changes the performance of the wood, and many instances, the technical properties like hardness, MOR, MOE. So go back to my episode on soil chemistry and you can start to understand like the thousands of variables that come into play that could change that. The next thing here is he talks about old growth pine. Old growth will have really dense growth rings um, versus two by four with widely spaced rings. Well, I talked about this in an episode a while ago, like, uh, like the old stud versus new stud debate. It was probably one of like the first 10 or 20 episodes of this podcast. And Old growth, yeah, is really densely packed rings. Therefore, it has um, it's it's much denser in general. It's a much higher Janka hardness. It affects the MOR and MOE. The denser it gets, usually the stiffer and the the higher bending strength it has, but also the more brittle it could be. But here's the other thing: we're not talking about a hardwood here. We're talking about a softwood, and unlike hardwoods. The denser a hardwood is, the stronger, air quotes around stronger, it will be. The denser a softwood is, actually the less strong it will be. And I talked about this in that stud episode. The stronger, structurally speaking, stud is wider spray growth rings. So you get all the restorationists who are like, oh, they don't make studs like they used to. You're damn right, they make them better. By specifically growing a stud forest, a two by four forest, and, and turning over, you know, clear cutting and turning over every four years or so, you get a stronger stud because the wider space the growth rings in a softwood, the stronger it is. Because softwoods don't have pores, traditionally speaking, like hardwoods, they have tracheids, and the, just the structure is totally different. So the wider spacing makes for uh, um, just a stronger wood. So old growth pine is actually incredibly brittle. It's also incredibly resinous. Due to that, that tightly packed nature, all the things that actually weaken a widely spaced wood are like on crack at that point. So um, on a hardwood, old growth hardwoods are going to be significantly stronger than, than you know new growth, second, third growth, wider spaced growth rings. Um, they're gonna be darker um, in appearance. They're gonna be denser. They're gonna have a higher Janko hardness. They're gonna have a higher MOR, MOE, which could actually be quite bad because they could be to the point where they're actually quite brittle. And for great woods like um, genuine mahogany that just works and carves like butter, if you've ever worked with old growth Cuban mahogany, it's actually, it, it doesn't carve as well as the, the current second or third growth genuine mahogany. It's kind of interesting. It kind of goes too far. Um, and you'll find that with some of the older growth. I've dealt with some old growth walnut, um, uh, old growth um, oak, a red oak and white oak. And it's a totally different species. It's hard as anything. And I find it to be substantially harder to work with. Now I'm coming from the perspective of working with wider space growth ring stuff. That's kind of what I quote, grew up on and that's what I got used to. So now I switched to cherry and I love working with cherry as it in its current form. I switched to old growth cherry 
and it's a pain in the butt to work with. So yeah, you might find some other things here, but really that's it. That's the, the difference. A tree grows on the side of the hill. It gets tighter growth rings on one side that's under compression. So it's harder. It's, it's stiffer. It could be more brittle. The tree on the other side is going to be more reaction prone. It's going to be moved a little bit more because this, it's stretching out. But it's really the same thing as saying uh, old growth versus new growth. You know, tighter growth rings versus wider space growth rings. Um, tree has uh, a forest fire. Um, or it's down, downwind or downstream from a pulp plant and there's chemicals leaching into it. It's going to change the soil chemistry and therefore it's going to change the working properties um, and the actual like performance of that tree itself. So doing a whole episode on this, I'm not sure I can do because there are so many variables in play and there really are no rules of thumb other than what we just talked about. So Gold star, Stephen, for hitting the two rules of thumb, probably the only rules of thumb, but I would love to hear from anybody else if you can think of another example. And if you think it's worth expounding on this, I will look into it. I think I may just have to dig really deep in order to come up with enough material for an episode other than what I just did. <laughs> Finally, let's close it up with a question from Michael. He says, I I'm curious to know what happens to the structure of wood cells when you burnish wood. The reason I ask is I'm making... Um, make marking knives from a local Texas hardwood, mesquite specifically. And I've noticed a marked difference in the chatoyants when I sand and finish those from uh, some of them I'm, I'm buffing and essentially burnishing in a buffing wheel. Um, and some I'm just soaking in, in boiling suit oil and then sanding back. And I'm seeing such a huge difference there. I wonder if it's the burnishing. In other words, the stuff that's been burnished is showing significantly more chatoyancy than the stuff that wasn't. So let's talk about it. Burnishing is essentially friction. It's heating the wood. So there's a couple things happening here. First and foremost, it's heating it. So as the wood is brought up to a higher temperature, you're kiln drying it. You're thermally modifying that wood. You're driving it all the moisture, but then you're also physically hardening, in some instances, chemically hardening the cellulose and the hemocellulose. It's the same thing that happens when you thermally modify wood. You bring it to such a high temperature that you actually crystallize the cellulose and hemocellulose. You drive out all the moisture, but then because you're crystallizing it, it just is physically harder. So it's going to, it's denser, it's harder, it's going to appear darker when you apply finish to it. It's also not going to absorb quite as much. So this can represent in two different ways. Put a pen in that real quick. The second thing you're doing as the temperature is coming up is the actual physical pressure. As the, as the wood gets hotter, it becomes more pliable. Same reason that we add, we steam bend, but you can also dry heat bend a piece of wood. No, no steam at all. You see this a lot in thinner pieces like stringing material or whatever. Luthiers use this technique a lot where they're bending over a heated pipe. No steam at all. The heat just makes the, the fibers more pliable. So as you're heating it up, those fibers are becoming more and more pliable and the actual physical friction of you pressing that into a buffing wheel or, or running a, a burnishing rod over the wood is actually folding those fibers over. So any open air, any exposed pores, any kind of divots in the wood is essentially being combed over. And it, it's kind of French polishing or even pore filling in some respects. So all of the, the open air, all of the, even if it's microscopic, the slight um, texture in the wood is essentially being combed over. So you've got a much, 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 much smoother surface. This is what happens when we use a polissoir or we use a burnisher or we sand to like 32,000 grit as I've done a couple times in making pens on my lathe. You're actually physically combing it over and making a physically smoother surface. You're driving in all the moisture and you're chemically altering the structure of the wood like you would with thermal modification. So there's a lot of stuff that's going on there. So why does this dramatically change the chatoyancy? Well, first of all, no moisture in the wood means that the wood is going to be thirsty and it's going to suck up more finish, which is going to make for a darker surface. You're also increasing the density by hardening it, which is also going to make a darker surface. Case in point, rub finish onto face grain, rub finish onto the end grain. Two things going on in the end grain. It's soaking in more finish through the open pores, but it's also just denser material, so it's going to appear darker. The other thing that could be is as you burnish that surface, as you chemically alter that and you kind of bake it to a hardened surface, it might not be absorbing as much finish 
So what you may find is the softer material that wasn't burnished as much is soaking up more material and that's becoming darker than the, uh, the highly burnished stuff. It can go both ways depending on the species and the, its natural hardness before it was burnished. So, and actually so many other variables in, in play that you could see softer material in the same board uh, presenting differently. The key component here is you're creating, you're widening the delta between the softer material and the harder material. You're making that difference so much wider that you're getting greater chatoyancy. You're getting greater difference in absorption of finish, which is what creates that three-dimensional chatoyancy effect. So it's not an easy answer, honestly, Michael, but it's a fascinating answer. There's so many things going on when you heat up the wood like that and fi apply physical pressure. If you were just putting it in an oven and heating it up, you would not get the same results. But the fact that you're heating up through friction and actually physically applying applying pressure under the wood, you get that comb over effect. That's what we're going to call it from now on, the comb over effect. So great question, Michael. I'm so glad you asked that because it's, uh, it definitely appeals to the geekiness in me and I can reference many other episodes in the past on that. So have I talked enough? I probably talked enough. I think it's time to get a guest back on the show. Yeah, I think it's going to happen. Anyway, Thank you for listening, everybody. Thank you for supporting the show. Thanks for the great questions. Let me know if there are other questions and feedback from this episode. I'd love to hear from you. So uh, I'll close in saying, let's look forward to the new year and new trends. Go buy some cross-laminated timber. Or go buy some wingy. Just don't tell anybody did it because it's liable to empty your wallet. Have a good one, folks. Merry Christmas. Happy holidays. Happy new year. I will see you in 2024.